What do you do when you proclaim the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again and are only met with hostility and rejection? If you are Jesus, none of us are, but if you are Jesus, you begin to teach in parables. To make the truth clearer, We'll see. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the 13th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And we are studying this gospel account and we find ourselves at a strategic turning point in the life of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he now is going to do something he has not been doing. And that is he's going to begin using parables. And it will be, it will be many things, but it will be fascinating. I promise you that. And so we'll begin in verse 1. Let's go ahead and read the opening nine verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where, there, where, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. The when is important. The when, according to our text, is on that same day. On that same day as the events of chapter 12 were occurring, Jesus strategically begins teaching in parables. On that same day, in chapter 12, Jesus for lack of a better way of describing it, absolutely lambasts the religious leaders of the day. He exposes them as fraudulent, not as good, caring shepherds of the people, but abusive, self-centered, and he really, really dresses them down and lets them have it with both barrels. On that same day, Crowds, seemingly like never before, come to Jesus. Maybe it's because controversy draws a crowd. Maybe that's part of it. Part of it could be that they, now that they've had their leaders exposed, they want to come to Jesus to, to learn more, to get, to get help. No doubt people would have come for lots of different reasons. But they now come to Jesus. The where is Galilee along the shore. He's on a boat to get some space, perhaps for amplification as well. And he's seated in the formal teaching position. And they're all standing as listeners. It would have been quite a scene. The what is parables. I remember learning that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a spiritual meaning. I think that's a, that's a pretty good place to start. Um, some have su suggested that parables are uh, when you move from the clear to the unclear, and hopefully the clear helps to make clear the unclear. Uh, my first search on the 
internet said, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. And to all of those, I say, not bad, pretty good, true, insofar as they go. Because when we're talking about the parables of Jesus, there's more involved than just a making simple a story or a spiritual truth made simple. So with with that in mind, let's now go to verse 10. And Jesus talks about the purpose behind parables. Then it says in verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you, the disciples, right? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. So now if we want to maybe build on those other definitions of parables, we could say that the parables of Jesus talk about the kingdom, His kingdom, the kingdom uh, of heaven, the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the the gospel of the kingdom. And sometimes we make that too complicated. Think about the fact that it's not that complicated. Jesus is the king, uh, Messiah, Christ. And what is the Messiah, Christ, king, to do. He's to save his people from their sins. He's to protect them. He's to provide for them. He's to care for them. Uh, things we've been hearing all along. So when, when the king, the ultimate Messiah comes, he's going to be the one who can rule and reign forever. He's eternal. He's going to rule and reign over people forever. So somehow they're going to live eternally as well. He brings restoration. He brings healing. He brings all good things. He stops all bad things. And the things we've been seeing Jesus do through miracles have given us previews have have shown us that he really is the one who has that power. And so a parable is in part about the kingdom. It's about the king. It's about all that the king brings and all that he entails and all the benefits that he will bring. And so parables are kingdom parables, sometimes we say, and rightfully so. So we can build on... Parables are about the kingdom, generally speaking, if not entirely speaking. But now, I hope you noticed... There's a two-edged sword involved in verse 11. It cuts two ways. To the disciples, it's been given to know. But to those who aren't the disciples, it's not been given to know. So parables are in part designed to reveal, right? To make things clearer for the disciples, But if we're talking about the parables of Jesus, we learn sometimes what the person on the street doesn't know, sometimes what people in churches don't know. Parables are also, at the same time, if they're the parables of Jesus, are designed not only to reveal, but what? To conceal, to actually hide the truth, which is pretty fascinating, very fascinating. Parables are meant to make things clear, but that's not all. They're also meant to make things not so clear fascinating. So when someone says, oh, I wish pastors would use parables more often, the best preachers are those who speak in parables. I know what they mean. They mean they like illustrations. I like illustrations. The problem with illustrations is people always remember the illustrations and not the text, but I digress. But really, I've never been given permission to speak in parables. I think it would be wrong for me to speak in parables because I've not, my calling as a Christian preacher is to not try to hide the truth from people. 
Jesus, who's sovereign and who's the king, has the right to do that. But I would suggest to you that only Jesus has the right to do that. So I know what people mean when they, they want to do storytelling and they say it's all about parables. But if we're thinking biblically, it's meant to make the truth clear to some and unclear to others. We would have to say, eventually, it's, it's a form of judgment to be preaching in parables. And Jesus is the judge, so he has the right to do that. So it's rather striking that he says this. I wonder, I wonder why we don't hear that more often. I wonder why it's only the positive and not the negative. I think one reason is because we're, and we've already gotten a taste of it, and we're going to get a big dose of it when we keep reading in just a moment, is because when we're talking about the parables of Jesus, revealing and concealing as he sees fit, we're talking about the sovereignty of Jesus. We're talking about the freedom of Jesus to do whatever he wants to do. And I'm talking quietly because one of my favorite theologians, John Owen, says that when you talk about the sovereignty of God, you should speak softly because you're talking about the very heart of God. God does whatever he wants to do. And, and that's not free for you or free for me. We like to think that we're sovereign and we're in charge. But the reality is the Lord Jesus Christ as the divine one is sovereign and he freely chooses to do whatever he wants to do. And he's gonna, he has told us and he's going to tell us he wants to make it clear to some and he wants to hide it from others. And that maybe is an uncomfortable truth because it tweaks our sovereignty, if you will. Okay? Now, I do want you to also know there's a context. The context, I'm just going to remind you, has been rejection, 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 rejection. Jesus is not now hiding the truth from the, from the spiritually neutral. He's not hiding the truth from, from believers. But they've seen, they've heard, they've touched, they've experienced Jesus doing all of the things that he's been doing publicly, verifiably, historically. And the religious leaders have gone after him, even calling him demonic. And so now Jesus, strategic shift as an act of judgment, is teaching in parables toward them. And so keep it in mind, this isn't just Jesus randomly uh, in a bad mood sort of thing, uh, acting the way he does. It's an act of judgment, and they deserve the judgment. So with that in mind... With that in mind, let's go ahead and learn more about why he does what he does and his freedom to do this as the sovereign one. Verse 12. For to the one who has, that's revelation from Jesus about himself and they've positively accepted it, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. That's positive. But from the one who has not, read in light of chapter 12, they've been rejecting, actively rejecting. Even what he has will be taken away. That harkens back to chapter 12. No neutrality. Verse 13 then says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. It reminds me of what Jesus said earlier when he said, There comes a point in time when you don't cast your what? Your pearls before swine. Maybe that's a similar idea here. Cross-reference text, just to be clear that it's not just in Matthew's gospel account, is Mark chapter 4, verse 11. It might even be stronger. To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, 
Everything is in parables. Everything is hidden. Pretty strong. Pretty severe. Forceful. Before we move on, I just wanted... I need a little counseling from you. Um, This is what I put up with when I read lots of commentaries every week. This is my favorite commentary. And tell me what you make of it. Commentators differ. This is a quotation. Commentators differ as to whether parables were meant to make the truth plain and simple or whether they were a way of making a veiled witness to truth. I'm like, what? You didn't help me at all. And by the way, it's pretty amazing when you just read the text. (laughs) It's making it clear to some, and it's veiling it from others. I mean, it's really straightforward. As I like to say, quoting one of my old teachers, it's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. It's like, what in the world? Anyway. I digress. Thank you for soothing me. Um, I've gone through a lot for you to preach this. <laughs> Not really. Let's keep moving. Verse 14. Indeed, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And I want to stop there just for a moment for effect. It's going to be Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And in one sense, you'd say, Awesome, right? I always wanted it to be in the Bible. The Bible talks about us. Now, it's not going to be that. But I just want you to, to, to catch the negative gravity. The Bible talks about these people. But you don't want the Bible to talk about you if it's going to talk about you like this. It's sort of like when I, when I talk to people who say they're atheists. I'm like, I'm so glad to meet you. You don't believe in God? This is amazing because I don't believe in you. Because you're in the Bible. Really? Yeah, yeah, you're in the Bible. It's amazing. You're in the Bible. Let me show you. Romans chapter 1, Psalm 14. There's no such thing as an atheist. There's a professing atheist, but ultimately, at least according to the Bible, all of us know deep down inside that there is a God. If you're an atheist, I'm glad you're here. We can be friends, but I would like to talk more about it. I digress again. Point being, these guys are in the Bible prophesied about in the Bible, and it's not a good look. It's not a good look at all. Notice what he says. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Harsh, harsh words. 15 says, For this people's heart has grown dull or or calloused. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So it was bad enough when Isaiah said it to the unbelieving, revelation-opposing, professed people of God. And now Jesus says, it's fulfilled in you. You want to talk about really bad, it's, it's you professed people of God, stiff-arming, rejecting, clear, visible, like it's never been clear, revelation, it's been fulfilled in you, Jesus says to them. Really strong, really intense, severe. If there would have been sensitivity, I would heal them. The I would heal them is shorthand for I would be your king ultimate Messiah, bringing restoration where sin has brought destruction. I would be the one who would give you life. I would be the one who would give you protection. 
It's, it's, it's messianic kind of talk. But you saw, witnessed, observed, rejected, 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 rejected. Fulfillment of that here before your very eyes. It's heavy stuff. It's sad. It's bad. It's real. Verse 16 then says, we're going to go positive now, by the way. So you're prepared to be blessed because you're going to be blessed now. Okay, here we go. But blessed or blessed in 16 are your eyes, the disciples, the believers. I love this. For they see and your ears. For they hear. Oh, Jesus pronounces the blessing upon them. You, and he's obviously speaking beyond the literal. You've witnessed and you've responded the right way. He's, He's congratulating them, if you will, for being in touch with reality. Because think about it. Jesus has been doing all of these things, again, I'm going to repeat myself, publicly for all of them to see. He's proven that he has the power to do these things. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed of God because you're concluding that the facts are the facts. You're blessed of God. You're blessed of God. And here's why you're blessed of God even beyond that. More specifically, I love verse 17. For truly, earnestly, sincerely, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I think he's using the see and hear a little bit differently here as historical witnesses. While it may be true that Israel has had a long, dark history of unbelief, quoting Isaiah chapter 6, it's also true that there have been believers. Some would call them the remnant. There have been prophets and there have been righteous people throughout history. And what have they been doing? They've been longing, waiting, eager for Messiah to come to bring healing, restoration, salvation, forgiveness, protection, to be the one. My question for you is, how long has believing human history been waiting, longing, yearning for this? Since Genesis chapter 3, I would say. Since Genesis 3, waiting, longing, yearning, godly men and women, boys and girls, not to mention prophets, have been waiting for the last Adam, waiting for the one who would lead the human race into righteousness. They've been longing, waiting, wishing. And now Jesus says to the disciples, You're blessed. You're blessed. You are now witnessing what believing human history has been waiting for. It's pretty amazing, really. If Jesus Jesus is not who he says he is, he, he of all people is like the worst person ever. The biggest egomaniac ever. I don't think that's true. But here he is saying, it's all been about me and I'm here. And so you're blessed because I'm your Savior. It's wonderful, really. It reminds me of the song we sing sometimes when we sing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, Born to Set Thy People Free. There's a long history of expectation. And Jesus is saying, now's the time. 
Now we come to the explanation of the parable. So we're kind of shifting gears a little bit, and we're going to hear Jesus explain the parable. And by way of preview, before we get into the explanation from Jesus, this is very helpful for us for a couple of reasons. It's helpful for us because he's not always going to explain his parables. So what we're going to do is remember this, even when we get to other parables, and we're going to remember and, and seek to follow his example. How did he interpret parables? Let's do it like he did it to the best of our ability. So there's that. But there's also this important aspect. He, he has the disciples close, right? The crowds are there, and the disciples come to him to ask him why. Explain to us. And he's explaining to them. And so now he's going to explain that as the good news about the king and his kingdom and all it entails goes out, not everyone is going to respond positively. There are going to be different kinds of responses. This is good for his disciples to know ahead of time because everyone in their right mind would believe in Messiah. The facts are right there. But they're not all going to. Jesus is going to tell them that even now. It's also helpful, helpful for them because they're also going to be commissioned eventually to go preach the good news about the king and his kingdom. And they're going to receive similar responses. And eventually the baton's going to come to you and to me and we proclaim the good news about Christ and all that comes with Christ. And there are different responses. It's good to know that. It's really good to know that. I'll, by way of preview, even say to you and remind you that Jesus always preached the message perfectly. Always, right? And there were different responses. We are never going to preach it perfectly. We're going to do our best. And even if we get it as good as we possibly can, let's remember there are different responses. There's no need to change the message the good news about the king and his kingdom. The problem isn't with the message. The problem ultimately ends up being with the different responses that don't make sense. Ready to go? This is an evangelism training seminar, okay? In one sense, in one sense, and it prepares us and equips us. So let's go ahead and hear Jesus' interpretation. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And again, shorthand for the, the kingdom, the king, all that he entails from the beginning to the end. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Oh, so the birds symbolize or help us to see a spiritual reality of the evil one satanic removal oh that's fascinating that's interesting so whenever the message goes out one possible response or one possible thing that happens is that I would take it that that would be true for Jesus when he preached it perfectly for his disciples when they did a great job and for you if you do a great job that's one thing that happens when the truth about the king and his kingdom and all that it entails goes out. That's one thing. Verse 20 says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, there's example number two, this is the one who hears the word, the word of the gospel, the word of the kingdom, the word of the Messiah, and immediately receives it, receives it with joy. So it's positive, it's good, yet he has no root in himself, 
but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There's a second negative one, right? Sign of life. Response, where do I sign up? But over time, because of difficulties, as the old Puritans, some of them would say, you find out eventually through time and trials if someone truly is a disciple and belongs to Christ. But this is enlightening for us. This is helpful to know. There, there is such a thing as a sign of life that's not sustained. And Jesus is equipping them and us to know this. Super helpful, even if it's disheartening. 22 says, as for what was sown among thorns, now here's a third type, this is the one who hears the word, but, care, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So like weeds, whether it's the pressure from my friends, pressure from my family, from my boss, from my career, from my promotion, from my, you fill in the blank. Some Something or someone takes what some would say pride of place. Number one, there's a greater priority. It was seemingly at first, you're my savior, you're my king, you're my Lord, you're my everything. I trust in you for everything. And sometimes there's a drift that happens away from that and it gets nudged out. And before you know it, any signs of life are gone. And it proves unfruitful, he says. So there's another negative one. The first three are negative. Then 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Oh, good. There's the positive. I'm told from what I read, 30 is good. But then there's abundance, and then there's an abundance of abundance. But do notice the fourth and final response shows sustained life, right? There's sustained attachment to Christ, the kingdom, the king, and all that it entails and he entails. So there are four different kinds of responses. This is very, very helpful. Helpful for them, yes, but very helpful for us also. A couple of takeaways. A couple, maybe two, three. Okay. One would be, let's remember this when we get to other parables. Jesus just gave us a key to interpreting other parables. There's a lot of spilt ink um, over what parables mean, and it gets real crazy real fast, and all of a sudden parables are allegories, and they're kind of whatever you want them to be, and every fact and feature means something, even if the text doesn't tell us. And what we end up learning a lot about are the authors of the book and what they'd like to find in parables, okay? And so generally speaking, good works on parables will tell us it, they're meant to be rather simple. Oftentimes one main point, or maybe more than one, but not, not a whole lot of detail. And they're pretty easy to understand if you're a believer. And so that's what we'll aim for later, but just kind of keep that in mind and we'll try to keep learning from Jesus here. Another takeaway would be that... True believers show signs of life over the long haul. 
Okay? There is sustained fruit bearing over time. Not everybody's the same. There's difference. But true believers, the fourth category, there's life and there's sustained life. And so we should remember that. Assurance comes from believing in Christ because His work is done, first and foremost. But there's also assurance that comes from, you know, over time, even through trials, I continue to trust in Christ and I continue to want to live for Him and for His honor and for His glory. And we see that here. With some of the others, there were temporary signs, but they didn't last. And anyone who has more than a first grade education, I would trust... um, would understand that the other soils weren't, weren't, weren't positive. Only the, only the fourth one is really positive, I think, unless we have a, a theological agenda to try to make something else of them. A final takeaway would be this passage affords us with some really important categories. In fact, maybe I'll even narrow it down to, to one really important category. And that important category is that there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. And that's really important because lots of Christians I've met, surely none of you, but lots of Christians I've met, I've met uh, in our new membership class here or outside of the church context don't have a category for that. There is such a thing as someone who says they're a Christian. They might even show signs of life for a time they're not actually Christians. And I would go to this text to really help me see that and to understand that from Jesus. And so keep that in mind. If you don't have that category, um, you're probably going to conclude that you can lose your salvation. And we're not going to get into that today. John chapter 10, John chapter 6, Philippians chapter 1. I said we're not going to get into that. Jesus said, I lay my life down for the sheep and I lose none of them. That's for another sermon in another time. But, oh, we lose our salvation? No, I I wouldn't try to find that in this passage. Or, on the other extreme, we think that anyone who professes faith for sure is a Christian, even if they eventually become an atheist. And that doesn't make any sense especially in light of a passage like this. In light of a passage like this. So I believe with all of my heart, if you're truly saved, you'll always be saved. John 10. Can't get around it. But there is such a thing as someone who says they're a Christian, who's not actually a Christian. And time and trials, to use shorthand, will make that clear. It's important to know that because then what I won't do in your life is assure you of your salvation. I'll tell you the gospel and evangelize you and encourage you to look to Christ if you're now an atheist. I'll take a different approach and I'll lovingly, I hope, kindly, gently do that, but I'll, I'll take a different approach. The evangelical church is people who are, is filled with people from what I've seen who don't have the category. I think you can now have the category and you can praise Jesus for the category and know how to better deal with people. So I hope you've enjoyed our seminar. Um, You all can leave with a greater confidence, I think, if you know the gospel, the good news about the king and his kingdom, you can leave with a greater confidence that you proclaim that. And bad results don't necessarily mean you've done a bad job. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We proclaim him and that's what we want to do and we leave the results to God but we know there are going to be different responses. No need to change the message. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for churches literally around the world 
that proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. We are sinners. The world is filled with sinners. We need salvation, and we know that it can only come through your son, Jesus. For those of us who are believers, may we leave here not arrogant, prideful, and puffed up, but may we leave here as men and women and boys and girls who want to tell other people the good news of salvation that we've experienced according to your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.